0: To the Limousine, the podcast between this week, Kate Ladegar and I are talking to James Howard Cuntzler, the author of the *World Made by Hand* novels, *The Long Emergency*, and other works.
1: Same.
2: Well, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I started this little homestead here, and uh, uh, I had to learn a lot, but I did. And uh, you know, be- first year I was certainly getting a lot of vegetables. Uh, and uh, by the second year, the chickens were producing eggs. And I don't have any goats, but I, I don't think they're that difficult to
0: keep. No, no goats seem like they would be a lot of fun. Okay.
3: We have goats now.
2: Uh-huh. Where are you?
3: We're in Maine. Oh. But it's good we have we live right in the middle of a small town, but we're allowed to keep goats and chickens and um.
2: How much property a, do you have?
3: We it's only an acre and a third. Uh, an so, acre's
2: a big, big piece of chunk of land.
3: Yeah, it's big enough, I think.
2: Yeah. So
3: it's good for you. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, that's um, I would say that your writings have given some uh, inspiration for <laughs> building up layering on. I mean, this is we've been doing going in this direction anyway, but you've given me things to think about, such as proximity to a waterway. Yeah. You know, just why not? Why not factor that in?
2: Well, sure. You know, you know, people who move to Tucson, I think, must be out of their minds.
3: You probably never like.
2: They do, you know. Yeah. Oh, they do. Now they do. What are we going to do about those people? Well, just give them a vaccination; they'll be all right.
3: So I had, I think, I've told you, Jim, before that uh, I found Jason through you, and I found you because my husband found Geography of Nowhere on a bookshelf in a small bookstore called Burton's in Greenport on Long Island.
2: Oh, dear. What a chain of consequence.
3: I know. And he got this for me. And because I have a, um, I have an interest in Christopher Alexander and built environment stuff. John Stilgo, Christopher Alexander, Gaston Bachelard, all of those um, things have been in, inspirational to me in terms of um, both built environment and domestic settings. You know, I, I tend to really enjoy thinking a lot about this. Also um, Edith Wharton's writings on the subject. Mm. And so he picked up that book knowing <coughs> that. and your perspective on it gave it more of a um, pertinent Context in terms of uh, having it, making it a, what I was thinking theoretically making it important as to where we are here and now, and yeah, I'd also a lot
2: of urgency to the whole thing, and also uh, you know I was writing for the general reader, um, you know not for graduate students or you know architects or you know
3: yeah, but I, I think in that way it may it obviously gives it. you you deal very much in broad context and but you get into great detail as well and i think that is what is um what i think is especially valuable about your perspective in your writings is that you tend to look at things from with a very wide lens and you see um how certain details affect um broader uh yeah have broader consequences than you might guess that they would and Mm. I think this is something that a lot of people don't consider and I had the experience of introducing bringing you in to a Christopher Alexander group uh, in an interview and that was the building beauty thing and um for which everybody was very excited and it was a great interview. They used it as the introduction to this. Um, I think it was a workshop or a conference or something. But then afterwards, there was blowback from certain people.
2: Uh, oh, what was it? The racist? The
3: ca- you have the cancel culture. You know, we have to yeah. apologize. We have to put out a statement to apologize for having Künstler on, because <laughs> you know he's unacceptable. Because
2: Wikipedia says I'm a right winger
3: right and it's um you know so that was an interesting experience for me
2: look at th- these this is just a gang of fucking jacobins you know and 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 uh like the jacobins they're going to be overthrown very swiftly on uh on on the pikes of their own absurdity. well you... so uh you know we shouldn't take them that seriously um and and they just you know look like at ridicule is probably the best way to deal with them
3: and and it's also the the thing that is the most offensive to them too. Fuck them, so it, huh? Fuck them. Yeah. No, I, I don't, don't
2: care if it offends them.
3: Well, no. I
2: mean, there. Why is their offendedness the the be all and end all of human uh, existence?
3: Well, this is uh it, this is just the the scenario that we're in. And you you do not mince words. You do not um, soft. Uh, you do not. If you have an opinion, you do not express it gently. If you have something controversial to say. I guess that's
2: pretty obvious now in this conversation.
3: Well, yeah, it but but I think that's precisely what is um you know, what what people react to and respond to. It's uh When
2: I hear pussyfooting around this issue, it just makes me more aggressive about it. Yeah. So I I I'm sorry about that, but that's how it is. I I'm not going to give them an inch, yeah. no quarter, no quarter to these maniacs. These people are insane, and they needed to be treated uh, that way.
3: Well, it's That's a culture. People. It's a culture of insanity. It's a culture where insane behavior. Is it is it insane or is it just? I mean- yeah, they're
2: insane. You know, it's, it, it it amuses me because uh, I, I was a theater major when I was a college student. And one of the productions I appeared in was uh, Peter Weiss's uh, Marat Sad, the assassination and persecution of Marat, blah, 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 which was a reenactment of the French Revolution as performed by mental patients in a mental hospital. That was the mise-en-scene. And uh, this is exactly what what we're living through now. So, you know, I have a deep fifty year familiarity with the program that we're uh, that we're captive to, and uh, I refuse to submit to well, it.
3: Well, I think you have a sense of um, you have a sense of how the cultural and social climate has real effects on immediate behavior and outcomes politically. And I think this is something that most people do not understand. They do not understand the broader implications of something that uh, most people have such a very narrow uh, field of view. And this is so obvious in this past year and a half and seeing, I see so many people who are smart, you know, quote unquote, academic, smart, and who have always spoken intelligently and insightfully when I've had conversations with them, who to my way of seeing right now, have no perspective, no perspective whatsoever, whether we're talking about woke politics, whether we're talking about, um, vaccine stuff. Absolutely. When we're talking about vaccine stuff, we're talking about material culture, uh, Technocratic society. Nobody is thinking in terms of broad perspective and its consequences in everyday life. And and I I I don't quite. I mean, I do understand. I mean, i have seeing so many uh, people speak about propaganda. How I was. Very, I'm very much enjoying Mark Crispin Miller's um, interviews recently speaking about how propaganda works and how he's been canceled for questioning anything himself. You know, there's just, there's an absolute wall that people put up when they're invited to consider the broader implications of, of things that are happening, that when you look at things broadly, it seems obvious. You know, it seems obvious that there is real trouble happening at the moment. And there is such a drive in so many people to say it's this is all normal. This is all normal. And I mean, I think, you know, look at Dr. Fauci, like what you posted a day or two ago. You know, I wasn't aware of his puppy dog experiments. Right. What will it take? What will it take for Dr. Fauci to be canceled? You know, I don't
2: much more. I think he's uh, very close to to being shoved out.
3: I don't know. I have seen such complete. I mean, it is it's it's Orwellian.
2: Let me let me just jump in here a minute, Kate, because if you don't mind me saying uh, what you're doing right now is really amounts to verbal hand wringing. Yeah, we got we got to get beyond verbal hang hand wringing, you know, I think it's pretty simple. The reason that the thinking class in the West and in America in particular, as I know my own country best, the reason that they are acting as as foolish as they are uh, is because they've been subjected to mind fuckery. They've been mind fucked by a very elaborate program of propaganda. And uh, uh, the reason that it's working is as follows. We are, we have entered this thing that I call the long emergency. That, that's a name I gave the collapse of uh, Western techno-industrial uh, economies and cultures. And uh, it is being apprehended only sideways through the peripheral vision of the general public. And they see something going on that is extremely troubling and distressing, and it is generating enormous anxiety. uh, And that anxiety is making people susceptible to crazy, uh, disordered thinking. And that's what's going on, in my opinion. And it is not a whole lot more complicated than that. And, uh, you know, that's why you're seeing the equivalent of Jacobin madness in, you know, and the madness of mobs and crowds uh, in America. But uh, that sort of uh, group phenomenon in history tends to be short lived because it's so self destructive. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are now heading into the phase of its of its destruction and annihilation and uh, something else will follow follow it and attend that and uh, that it's liable to be pretty uh, difficult because it's going to involve a lot of economic hardship, which we can already see, you know, building and evolving in the scene all around us. And in the news that does get through, because not all the news is suppressed. dollar, we have problems with the capital markets. We have problems with the central banks. We have problems with the commercial economy of supply and demand and, uh, you know, keeping merchandise on the shelf for people. And, uh, you know, the outcome is going to be a tremendously disordered economy, including the economy of everyday life. And, you know, whether you get enough food to eat, whether you can get a part to fix your car uh, and go anywhere, whether your job is still... Can still be conducted because uh you know the the milieu that it's in still operates, so these are are tremendously anxiety producing uh events and and that's what we're seeing, but it doesn't mean that we have to treat the insane with kid gloves
3: have you has your impression of what is happening? what you refer to as the long emergency or what you have referred to as the long emergency, my understanding of it is that you have um, seen it as more or less of a passive uh, phenomenon tied to dwindling natural resources like um, peak peak oil and that kind of thing. That's how you have been talking about it. And I have noticed that you have been at times dismissive of what you've referred to as the Davos clowns. And I'm wondering whether, uh, you know, for when people say, no, this is being controlled and orchestrated. Um, it seems that you have said in the past, no, this is just something that's happening and, you know, they are, they're going to try their techno- wizardry and it's all going to fail and uh, you know doomed to fail because there's not enough time not enough resources are you thinking any differently about that given what's happened or given things that have been discussed over the past year or so well, yeah
2: I, i'm thinking a little differently in one respect which is that uh you know i'm coming around to the opinion like a lot of other people that uh the vaccine program is very sinister and uh and that uh it's hard to avoid the the possible conclusion that uh that uh, somebody wants to kill a lot of people so that that's one thing that's uh changed in my view i I still think of Klaus Schwab as being kind of a James Bond villain that um, the media has, I don't know, constructed as a, uh, let's call him a shit magnet for, you know, for people's animadversions. versions. Um, I I just don't see how, uh, you know... uh, uh, one clownish individual like that could be so powerful. It seems that's, that's the James Bond fantasy part of it, that, that this one individual, you know, sitting in a, in an underwater capsule, luxury capsule with a Persian cat on his lap, you know, is managing to pull off all of this sinister stuff. Um, I don't want to digress too much, but I do want to mention one thing, you know, What really got me worked up a few years ago and turned me into a pretty aggressive uh, blogger, political blogger, was the whole Russiagate thing. Uh, And, you know, what you saw there was an entire bureaucratic class that uh, uh, resorted to the grossest dishonesty to carry out uh, a pretty much uh, half-assed... uh, a pretty much half-assed program to overthrow the executive branch of the government, and uh, it seems to me that that was kind of the original sin of the the woke crazies, because they got away with a tremendous amount of official criminality and mischief, and there were no consequences to their criminal behavior, and it was a terrible tragic error that we failed in this country, judicially and administratively, to catch these crooks. Uh, I'm talking about the people in the FBI, James Comey, uh, uh, and and his whole gang, uh, Andrew McKay, Peter Strzok, uh, et cetera. And uh, the people in the Department of Justice, Bruce Orr, uh, uh, you know, a long list of people. Um, the fact that those people got away with those crimes was really what permitted th- these even more grotesque operations to happen afterwards. So, you know, one one thing that makes me somewhat uh, optimistic, I've been saying for at least a, two years, uh, yeah, at least since uh, he came on the scene that John Durham, the special prosecutor, <clears throat> was actually going to do something about this. And uh, just about everybody I know and communicate with disagreed with me about that. But, you know, he's now re-entered the scene with uh, a first indictment against a lawyer from Perkins Coie, which was the Hillary Clinton DNC law firm, and somewhat at the center uh, of a lot of these shenanigans uh, that amounted to Russiagate. And it appears that this is uh, only the first, the overture, by Mister Durham, uh, to construct a pretty serious conspiracy prosecution against a whole lot of people. Uh, And as I said, most of my friends are very skeptical about that. I think it's going to happen. I think it's very important. I think it's it's crucial that these original sinners of the woke. Uh, resistance, insane uh, campaign, uh, be adjudicated for what they did, and I think it's going to happen. So I just wanted to insert that because the importance of it is seems enormous to me. And I wonder what you think about it.
3: Well, what what that makes me think about is that it is a very common attitude, I think, among the among what I'd call liberals, of which I would, you know, I don't know what I consider myself now, but I would always have considered myself a liberal, a Scandinavian socialist, you know, far, far left. Um, you know, that was very much my idea.
2: Yeah, kind of hard to square that with uh, tyrannical behavior and despotism.
3: Exactly. And so what what I think came up for me In terms of that kind of approach um, to society or um, control, hold on one second, I have to cough, so
1: I'm gonna mute for a minute.
3: That kind of approach for guiding society Seems all well and good when issues come up, such as the control of um, assault rifles, right? You know, so I would be a person who would say people should be allowed to have guns, but absolutely no assault rifles and you know let's make laws because of assault rifles you know that would have been something we don't even <laughs> that know what mean. We,
2: we don't even know what we mean when we say assault rifles. i,
3: I mean like things that you, you look at can,
2: machine uh, guns are against the law period well Automa- then, fully automatic rifles are against the law you know they are. yeah they're against the law you can't have a machine gun in america in any american state I wasn't legally afraid. unless you're unless you're a law enforcement officer when people say assault rifles they, 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 what they really mean are simply uh long long rifles long guns as they're called that are styled to look like military rifles but don't oh. really function as them so it's it's a bullshit term
3: interesting well i was not aware of that but just to describe my point of view on something i would i would have said okay yes we need to make laws and we need to get that stopped. That's an important priority for society.
2: Stopped. There are no, You you know. I'm just pointing out, you know, your, your belief as somebody who was a liberal, Hmm. that assault rifles are the same as machine guns is just not true. So so what you have to do in this case is just accept, Oh, I didn't know what I was talking about and then proceed from there.
3: Okay. I, they, they grant that, grant that point. And so, think of it as me thinking of machine guns shouldn't be allowed and not realizing,
2: but they're not allowed allowed, against the law that they
3: weren't allowed in the first place. So that was my, but that was my attitude. And I think that's telling too, that I wouldn't have been aware of that because of how that message is delivered probably in the media.
2: So, and that's called mindfuckery.
3: There you go. Victim of my point being that, that to me would have seemed reasonable, putting controls on that. So then getting to the question of vaccination in general, and I have two young boys. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm, pretty, I'm very much a minimal interventionist when it comes to medicine. I've had a lot of, um, I don't dismiss modern medicine by any means, I think it has its uses. But um, I've had various uh, lasting side effects from medicines that I've taken in the past. That have demonstrated to me very clearly that you can have you can have permanent damage from things that seem completely safe and harmless. Yeah, I'm are sympathetic
2: pitched, to that view.
3: Pitched as safe and harmless, so you know, as I say, minimal interventionist in terms of um, what. I would put into my body, what I'd want to put into my children's bodies. And um, so I started noticing how very much that the, uh, the quote unquote liberal, quote unquote alternative news agencies totally dismissed my perspective on that. You know, that was not to be discussed outside the bounds of communication. And then how laws had started to come in, and a law, even in my own state, that prevents um, prevents my children from attending any school because they've not received their full roster of vaccines. And so that, to me, what really woke me up to this idea of, huh, okay, so I was, when it was a Cause that I thought I agreed with, I could say yes. I want laws to be made to prevent people from doing that thing. But when it comes to something like vaccination, and people are making laws that restrict what I can do, what our family can do, because they are, they believe that that's for the good of society. I realized this impositional approach to Changing the rules of how you know people can behave, what decisions they're allowed to make, that seemed very, I realized suddenly that that was very problematic. And so, so much of what's happening now seems to be the attitude of imposition, you know, the, that the that the ends justify the means to happen for the good of society. So all these things, we can do things by executive uh, declaration. You know, we can change, we can just jump over the constitutional process to make laws, yeah.
2: You know, let's not overlook the fact that there's a reason that uh, people are objecting to having their children vaccinated and uh, and are uh, objecting themselves to get uh, um, to be vaccinated and that's because there appears to be uh, a danger in in the vaccination and they seem to be very specific and very concrete you know this is a vaccination that can uh, harm your vascular system that can create uh, inflammation in the heart uh, uh, that can uh, create uh, uh, thrombosis and and produce strokes and and um, create all kinds of uh, havoc in your body, so that's really what's behind the you know the objection to people uh, having their children vaccinated and getting vaccinated themselves. Let's not overlook that. What you're what you're what you've been talking about is merely procedural, okay? So you know, let's get beyond the procedural thing well, and get to the point. The point I'm trying- is, yeah. The point is the vaccines are a lot of people consider the vaccines to be dangerous. That's, that's why they feel that the the imposition of it. I mean, who wants to be imposed upon to take something that's harmful to, to their body?
3: So my point is that I have for a very long time, been struggling to understand why people are so firm in their viewpoint and so willing to want to impose rules upon they're other religious
2: reasons. fanatics. They're well, religious it... fanatics. You know, John McWhorter just published a book about this. Um, John McWhorter a Columbia uh, University linguist. And, uh, you know, he's uh, making the point that, uh, you know, wokeism and, and all of its, uh, uh, you know, all of the asteroids that orbit around it um, really amount to kind of a religious uh, mania that has swept through Western culture. I, and I maintain that it, it's a reaction to the collapse of uh, the basic foundations of our economy. And, uh, you know, you see this periodically in history. So, you know, you're, I, I see you struggling and wringing your hands intellectually to understand it, you know. And, you know, it, it's got this huge emotional content that's uh, irrational, <clears throat> and no amount of, uh, you know, uh, uh, rumination is going gonna, is gonna to produce a Coherent an answer about it. it it's an emotional hysterical uh manic reaction to a uh a civilizational an existential threat to civilization and it's making people crazy
3: the existential threat being just that in your point of view things are running down
2: yeah things are running down now you know the, the, the there is certainly a whole uh uh, alternative set of questions, <clears throat> excuse me, about the sinister nature of the vaccine program, the sinister origin of the COVID-19 virus, and all of the behavior that went on in, the uh, CDC and, uh, and Tony Fauci's, uh, agency and, uh, uh, the farm pharmaceutical world and, uh, you know, the uh, the banking world in the shadows behind of all that. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of mystery behind that and, and stuff that we don't understand. And uh, um, that's why I say it's, it's very important to begin with these national security people, the FBI, the CIA, and the DOJ, and start getting them up on a witness stand and getting them to talk about what inspired th- that fiasco Uh, And I think maybe we'll start to make some inroads into the, you know, the national security state uh, uh, seditious coup that took place uh, in 2016, beginning in 2016. And, uh, you know, we need some insight into that, really, if we're going to get anywhere into understanding all the sinister things that followed it.
3: Have faith in the legal process in this country?
2: Well, um, I guess I do to a certain extent. I, you know, I think if Mr. Durham is is serious, and I do think that he is, uh, and I if I think he's shrewd and he understands the federal court system and how it works, um, I think that he can uh put up a pretty good fight against uh Merrick Garland and uh you know, the apparatus of the deep state as it's called that's, you know, lodged in the Justice Department and and the FBI and the CIA. I think he can I think that he can put up a pretty good fight and I think he's gonna. So uh yeah, I guess I, I do have some faith in that. But you know, the mills of the gods grind slowly and mm. they grind exceeding fine. Exceeding fine. And that's you know that's the quandary that we're in that this process has taken a really long time, um, but, you know, I think we're tending in the right direction. And then there's, you know, there are, there, are, there are a lot of other features or angles to this story. One of them is if indeed the vaccines produce long-term deleterious effects to the human body, you know, and and vascular problems uh, that can uh, appear, uh, let's say, from weeks to months to perhaps years after the the shots, you know, it's possible that people are correct in predicting that there's gonna be a significant die-off of people who got vaccinated.
1: Mm.
2: And uh, it's not a happy thought. Nobody wants to really uh, wrestle with that, but it's still a possibility. We don't know yet, you know, it's, we're standing by to see what happens. Here we are on the, you know, just entering the flu season and, and winter in the, you know, the Northern hemisphere. And uh, we'll see what happens. There, we have already seen uh, initial reports of what are I think called excess deaths in the UK. And, and uh, there's one out of uh, Ireland too, that is essentially showing that uh, there are a whole lot of uh, deaths showing up from heart attacks and strokes than appear to be within the normal ranges. And that's just that, you know, maybe that's just the beginning of what we're going to see. And we don't know. It's a ghastly thought. I mean, who wants to think about, you know, uh, uh, I I, I can count on, you know, one hand, the people I know who aren't vaccinated. I happen to be one of them. But, uh, um, you know, all the people I know are vaccinated. I don't want them to, uh, you know, drop dead or, or develop, uh, some kind of disabling problem. But, you know, the statistics are there already. I went to my own doctor for a routine physical last week and, you know, we had, we had quite a, uh, fraught conversation about, uh, you know, first mm-hmm. doing no harm and, uh, you know, and, and medicine destroying itself, uh, with dishonesty and, um, He said to me, you know, he said, can I convince you to get this vaccine? I said, absolutely not. He said, Jim, I'm 100% confident that this vaccine is safe. And I said, uh, I said, have you read the Vare's reports? And he said, "Uh, uh, uh, no, they don't show anything. And I thought, is this guy, it's lazy, out of his mind, not paying attention? you know all you have to do is go to the vira's website and it said there've been over 15,000 deaths i think it's up to 17,000 now and you know uh, something like 29,000 disabling after effects from the vaccine and and a whole lot more just you know plain adverse effects that that weren't disabling and i'm thinking you know what what is going on with uh you know with the medical establishment we knew before this by the way even before covid we knew that that medicine in the the United States had turned into the most disgusting and disgraceful racketeering operation that the world has ever seen. You know, the idea that you get, you know, that you, you go into an emergency room with a broken arm, you know, and have a cast put on and you get a cat, you get a a bill for $30,000 for this. You know, it's just out of this world and why there hasn't been a revolt about that. I got to tell you something that's a little bit uh, uh, uh morbid. Um, you know, we've had a lot of school shootings in the USA. I don't understand why we haven't had more shootings in the in the uh, financial uh, departments of the hospitals. I mean, imagine the damage they're doing to households and individuals and families. You know, some, somebody brings a kid into the emergency room with an ear infection and he's, you know, a common, uh, you know, garage mechanic or something works for the Subaru dealer. And, you know, the kid gets, uh, you know, some medication, all of a sudden he's got a $3,500 bill, you know, that completely wrecks the family budget. You know, I mean, these things are insane. So, hey. so anyway, what I'm trying to say with a lot of, uh, melodrama here is that the, the, uh, medical establishment in America was deeply compromised and corrupt before the COVID thing even happened. And uh, we have no reason to believe that they're dealing with it honestly now. In fact, we have every reason to believe that that uh, we shouldn't trust them at, at all. And then you get the public health officials into the, into the picture and you see people like Fauci lying continually and you see other characters like Peter Daschek and and Collins, the head of the uh, the CDC, I think, is the CDC, and uh, you know what you see there is just a a cast of characters who who just can't tell the truth. And so, you know, between the medical establishment, the doctors themselves, and the public health officials, it's a it's a grim picture of total institutional failure. And uh, just imagine how demoralizing that is to the American public, even the people who are woked up, you know.
3: Have you experienced any hospital uh, or service closures in the wake of the uh, vaccine mandates in your area? Because I have here. We have. No, uh,
2: I think I read about uh, hospital and Maine closing
3: a couple. I, I don't know if it's the entire hospital or. But, you know, emergency and pediatric and cardiac services no longer available. I think we have two hospitals where that's happened now. I
2: this- haven't seen the news about that in this area. We have a lot of hospitals here because, you know, all, uh, I'm north of Albany, which is the state capital, and there's a big teaching hospital in Albany Med. Um, but I can't imagine that there hasn't been a lot of trouble, that, you know, they're having a lot of staffing problems, if indeed they're pursuing a you know, vaccine mandate program.
3: So, so- in in light of all of the problems in the health care industry already, and the potential as you're saying that we're going to have more health problems um, in general coming down the pike uh, what do you what do you make of the mandates as as they affect the they're profession. illegal and
2: they're insane and people ought to fight against them strenuously and object and protest strenuously against them. And and uh, they ought to engage uh, lawyers who are willing to mount lawsuits against it and get it stopped. And that's exactly what's happening. You know, oh. you're beginning to see a really ferocious reaction against it.
0: How uh, are they and not only
2: not only that, but beyond that, I mean, you know, they're they are they are alienating ever more people in the, just the general population including many people who may have been, uh, you know, uh, identified themselves as liberal democratic voters who are now losing their livelihoods. Look, you can't deprive people of their livelihoods and threaten, you know, a, a, and, and, and come down with existential threats against their families without, without rousing a lot of really negative emotion.
1: Hmm.
3: It's, it, just, it, seems, it just seems completely indefensible from my point of view that um I mean, it, there's nothing that's really seems like a logical defense of these mandates as far as they affect hospitals and hospital services yeah it's insane <laughs> so Look, it, every public it,
2: service every public service is is being compromised you know mm-hmm. whether it's uh you know ambulance uh, drivers or EMTs or whatever you call them. um uh, uh you know public pub, public uh, uh government bureaucrats hospital workers uh home health care workers uh nursing care nursing home workers Sorry. You know, I, I mean across the board firemen police well, let's say you are a
3: public official who's making that decision what is what 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 defense would you have
2: Well, their defenses are, we must do this for the good of the people, but it's just hollow, stupid, superficial, specious. It's a specious defense. And, and, you know, what's going to happen is uh, that, uh, you know, with with the passage of a little more time, some of these people are liable to end up on the end of lampposts, hanging from them by by ropes. You know, this is really seriously, seriously bad Evil behavior
3: you people I think feel that okay, well, no, we have to have total immunity, we have to eradicate this, but you're dealing with what is called a leaky vaccine, meaning that the vaccine does not prevent transmission in people who have been vaccinated uh, transmission or um you know getting the getting the illness. And you're also dealing with an illness that has been shown to be zoonotic so even if you did get every human being to be um even if the vaccine weren't leaky you'd still have other creatures circulating the- well look if there
2: are far there are far better medical um elsewhere on the web and uh I don't think that we're going to put up a very good argument between, between us about that. Saying... I would direct other people, I would direct people to, for example, to uh, Peter McCullough's videos, Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, or um, uh, who's the uh, guy who uh, invented the, um... oh Christ. Oh,
3: um, at... the, uh, well, Mike Eden.
2: No. And Mike Eden was the Pfizer. Uh, well, he's a good guy to, to check in with, but the guy who invented the um, MRNA process. Oh,
3: um, I'm forgetting his name, yeah, but I'm yeah. sure Keith. Anyway, was...
2: uh, my, my point is, you know, I, I don't think we need to rehearse a whole lot of that I... except to say, you know, there's also the, you know, the, um, the AD, What what is the ADE uh, uh, acronym stand for? Um, we the process is of course that the vaccine tends to produce um, new iterations of of the virus and
3: um, immune dependent enhancement. There you right? go,
2: something like yeah. that or, or
3: antibody dependent enhancement. Right, right. Yeah.
2: Antibody dependent enhancement tends to produce new variants of the virus, which then become uh, increasingly dangerous. And uh, so you know it's a well known fact that you shouldn't vaccinate a population of any animal in the middle of an epidemic. And that's exactly what we've done, contrary to what really amounts to the common sense of virology, going back to, you know, the beginning of virology and, and which is not an an age-old science. Well
3: when when I bring up those two things though, I'm not trying to introduce you know other perspectives. You know people like Dr. McCulloch who, who have much more knowledge than I do. I bring those up as things that are mainstream news that are
2: well,
3: agreed upon. It's zoonotic. Yeah. The vaccine is leaky. So given those two,
2: universal- no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Plus Mm -hmm. the other things, which are also in the media, plus the other things. It's not just those two. There's a whole range of things about the vaccine. that. Uh,
3: Of course. But I'm saying in terms of what people who are having an opinion contrary to my own right now, they know these things already. How are they defending... um, this argument that everyone needs to be vaccinated given even those two very I haven't heard any
2: defense on. that I haven't heard any meaningful defense of it.
3: Hmm. Well, no, it's simply avoiding it.
2: They're simply uh, avoiding it, but it's, a, mental, it's a, a religious, it's a religious uh, thing,
3: but it's a mental it's, it, it is the excuse given when we're talking about things like vaccine mandates that are closing hospitals, closing hospital services. Uh Why, you know, how do you defend that? Oh, well, everyone has to be vaccinated. Well vaccinated with a leaky vaccine for a zoonotic illness. You know, that just seems to me the end of the conversation.
2: Well, it should be, but look at, we're in the midst of this conflict right now. We're right in the center of it. It, it, There's a fog of war Mm -hmm that is uh, uh, really affecting the whole conversation. So that's why you're not hearing any, you know, coherent defense of a, a an insane program. And that's why, you know, your rational reasons for for putting an end to it are not being received. That it's a fog of war and we're right in the center of it.
0: I, I'll jump in with something here. Um, it's coming to mind. I mean, Jim, earlier you were talking about the hucksterism in the medical industry there in the US and how just a few even a few years ago, people were more and more aware that it was a corrupt system. And we could say this to countless other institutions, like I've been really struck during the last 18 months, how people who were fully aware, two, three years ago, of the corruption of government institutions of medicine and farm big pharma, I mean, everybody's known that for decades, they suddenly seem to be changing their perspectives and and putting more and more trust in those institutions right at the time when they needed to be actually referring to what they knew about the reasons not to trust. So, I mean, this is across the board, it's not just with the medical establishment, it's with all the institutions. They're showing how untrustworthy they are, and we already knew it, and yet people are doubling down with their trust. So, so what is that? What's going yeah. on? Yeah,
2: you know, you see it especially. You see it especially in, in the university setting, where you know the, the campuses are inflamed with ideas that are absolutely idiotic, and the adults in charge, namely the deans, presidents, provosts, etc., are absolutely uh, silent and, and not doing anything uh, about this. And that's just, to me, the most stunning institutional failure.
0: Well, the parallel that came to mind just now was when in Britain, and you know about this because you read Lies of Kings, when it came out after Jimmy Savile died, more and more information came out about the organized pedophile rings throughout the UK, throughout history in the 20th century and today. And there was absolutely no reason to think that that wasn't still going on. And there is no reason, on the contrary. And yet, uh, although there was a period of increased awareness around that, essentially it got swept under the rug again and there wasn't even the necessity of an organized cover-up there because people just they volunteered to sweep it under their own rugs and the reason i mean one of the reasons besides just generally it's so abhorrent is that if you take if you if you follow this these kinds of revelations to their natural conclusion you end up realizing that you cannot send your children to school you can't take them to the local dentist you cannot trust any of the institutions not to rape your children you know period full stop and so so what do you do there at that point once you start following that through you start to realize that and so it's the same now on a bigger scale like if people the more people start to see how corrupt, and and more than corrupt, and hopefully we can come back to this, what you've become aware of, there's a sinister element that's that's not even corruption. It's like organized malevolence from the ground up and from the top down. Uh, The more people see that, the more it becomes, I mean, the options just run out. And if they keep going with those revelations, they end up realizing that they absolutely have to just uh, not rely on any of the systems see that they can't trust their governments. And that's just so terrifying to people that then- Well,
2: it's a parallel to what I said about the whole Russiagate thing where, you know, the reason Russiagate is important is because it involved corruption in the FBI, the CIA and the Department of Justice. And these are crucial institutions. You know, if they don't work, and if if they're militating against their own people, you got a very serious situation. So, you know, the same thing with uh, sweeping uh, pedophilia and, and uh, all of that business under the rug. So the net effect of that is where w- you find yourself in a cu- culture, as I've said in my own writing, you find yourself in a culture where anything goes and nothing matters. And what can be more demoralizing to the collective consciousness than that?
3: It's, and I think a very, uh, very important point is how all, it's like, there's no more, there's no more basis for anything. You know, if you look at woke culture, you know, identity politics, a drive to make, make everything all matters of identity and thus matters of reality seem to be con tied to conscious choice rather than any sort of physical basis or reality basis. You know, you have, you have a culture where everything kind of breaks down and seems to be a matter of invention or choice. I, I read, um, that recently, it's something I didn't know that the uh, head chaplain at Harvard—I'm not sure if he's the same. as yeah, an
2: atheist. Now. The
3: head of the divinity school is an atheist now, and I, I thought, huh, what? All right, that seems significant.
2: Look, this is not that complicated. I, you know, I'll tell you exactly what it is: is that uh, uh, in in the, in this religion of uh, of uh, you know left wokery, or Jacobin wokery, or whatever we want to call it, progressive wokery, um, it is a positive uh, mission to erase boundaries everywhere, so that you know the, all of cultural life becomes one big mishmash without any boundaries and without any categories, really, that are meaningful. And um, it just gets you back to the, uh, uh, the fact that a lot of... Uh, uh, the program of wokery involves mind-fucking. And, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the real question is, uh, how, how do intelligent people resist that? How do, impel- how, in- tell- how do intelligent people not allow themselves to be uh, subjected to that? Cool. And um, I'm not sure exactly how that works uh, because, you know, uh, it, it's so problematical in, right now in America because the thinking class itself has been hijacked in the service of this, in the erasure of boundaries. I'll tell you one of my theories, which you're not going to like very much, is that a lot of this has to do with the feminization of intellectual life in, in America. And it's my personal belief that uh, women have much softer boundaries uh, intellectually uh, and emotionally than men do. And so what you're seeing is the dissolution of boundaries. And, you know, it goes along with the whole uh, campaign to diminish men and emasculate men and and uh, cancel them. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, uh, that that's at the heart of the matter. It's a very unappetizing uh, proposition, but there it is.
0: Well, uh, it's I, compatible. I... Sorry, okay, but yep. let's jump in. It's compatible also with something that Jordan Peterson took, talked about that what would female totalitarianism look like and it, it would be the, the super nanny state where that maternal instinct is turned into drac- draconian control policies to keep everyone safe all of the time which is yeah. exactly and what and,
2: it and you know but also remember jordan peterson has suggested that uh, you know in, in jungian terms uh that you know the, uh, the there is there, there there is a chaotic uh, Uh, element to the female um, part of the human condition that uh, you know that there's a kind of dichotomy between order and chaos Uh, yin yang uh, arrangement of things and uh, you know I think we've allowed too much chaos to reign in in our in western intellectual life and it's time to like stuff it back in in stuff it back in its place to be perfectly brutal about it and you know what Uh, events and circumstances are going to do it, whether we like it or not, because we're not going to be able to continue this way. We're not going to be able to continue in chaos. And and one of the reasons you're seeing the nuttiness that you're seeing is because simply the chaos that's now reigning in American intellectual life. And it, it disorders people. You know, it's bad enough to be living in a civilization uh, whose economic underpinnings are falling away. There's another thing to be living in a, a culture that is, that has been has had chaos imposed upon it. And uh, you know, I I would I would trace this back as simply as saying that you know that began on the campuses when women were put in the in the uh, d- department chairmanships. And it's an unfortunate thing, and and uh, it happened, and uh, now we see the result of it.
0: Well, if you could see that uh, when we're talking about where it began, sorry, Kate, but I just want to stick this in the pot as well. Um, the, the Fabian Society, as I traced back their influence, that goes back to the late 1800s. And you can I mean, I can very clearly see an evolution from their their uh, philosophies and methodologies and woke culture—I mean, that was the beginning of liberal progressivism in many ways—and they infiltrated the academies, the arts, the sciences. They were—they were permeators, and it did cross the ocean as well. So you might—and they know, were allied with the—you know—the German
2: uh, uh, socialists. Mm-hmm.
3: Jim, when you say you're not gonna like this, the I what I I like a conversation and a communication and a debate. I like being able to consider all points of view, even and sometimes especially if I don't automatically just if I don't automatically agree with them. And I think that in the things that you write about, I think that when I feel myself rejecting or resisting them it's generally i'm will resist when you express something very strongly as you do you know that i feel is a perhaps a blanket statement or you're you know you're do you're overstating something for um either emphasis or comic effect um you know if this if this is something in my disagreement territory then i might you know, that might bring up a resistance in me, but to, and I think that that in the council crowd means rejection, you know, but to me, that just means, okay, here's, here's my spot where, you know, maybe I don't agree, or maybe I just haven't considered this. And this is where This is how I think things have broken down. It's in a sense of things becoming impositional, whether it's an imposed way of thinking, an imposed rules for society, an imposed, you know, what you'd call a nanny state, anything like that, that is being delivered as um, this is how things must be. This is where I think, the problem is the problem is in that sort of a, approach.
2: Hey, and, let, let's call it what it is. Let's not dance around the edges of it. It's tyrannical. It's yeah. Espotic. No, and I,
3: I, I 100% agree with that. And I think that the problem is that the people who are imposing or enacting the tyranny think of themselves as being the good guys, think of themselves as being the agents of uh, salvation for a society and a world that's
2: exactly of, what the people uh, that's exactly what the priests in the Spanish inquisition thought
3: <laughs> exactly, exactly and that's a very good point and when you call this a religion i think that's exactly the form you know the appropriate way to think of it so you know i think that there's a, a certain sense of empowerment that people have who see themselves as being liberal left what have you, they think that, okay, you know, we are trying to save the world.
2: Let me tell you what I think is at the kernel of this. And it's, it's, it's rather different from what you're stating. I think that the progressive woke Jacobin uh, uh, left program is not really about uh, helping or saving people. I think it's simply about coercing people simply about pushing them around and in fact i think beyond that it's actually downright sadistic it enjoys it takes pleasure in pushing people around it takes satisfaction and pleasure in punishing people and that's what we're seeing and they're pretending that it's uh, you know some kind of a righteous moral crusade but it's not it's really a crusade of uh, sadism and 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 punishment and uh uh it's insane and and it needs to be understood as insane i wouldn't waste any time trying to uh, uh rationalize it as uh, people who think
0: they're doing good well i i'm kind of interesting because i'm sort of between you and kate in a way here but it, it's, i mean i feel that like kate you're on the fence and you're trying to get off the fence and i feel like both jim and i have a have a much uh, we have a much easier time just calling a spade a spade and saying look this is tyrannical it's malevolent it's evil and just we just need to just recognize it for what it is and and say no i'm not going to take part in it whereas i think kate you're still wrestling with your own previous uh, affiliation with some of these philosophies and ideologies and stuff um so that's one thing but But then at at the same time, I do think that the question that Kate's raising is a good one, not because of the characters that Jim's talking about, I would agree, although even there's a blurry line between what they're conscious of and what's driving them unconsciously, because we know people who are driven by unconscious rage or hatred, they do come up with conscious rationalizations and they believe them. So even there's a blurry line. But then if you go again back to the roots of something like this or closer to the roots and look at the Fabian Society, you have characters like Havelock Ellis, George Bernard Shaw, Bertrand Russell. You have super geniuses who were trying to engineer a scientific based society. And now they've got now we're seeing the fruit of it. And they I certainly do believe they, they had some kind of twisted vision, kind of like a Bond villain, except except the bond villain rubs his hands and knows he's evil these guys really believe that this is a necessary long term plan to save the species or to you know eugenically engineer manipulate evolution in such a way that the you know the right outcome will eventually be achieved like um, Bertrand Russell even wrote one of his books that, yes, we're going to have to have about 200 years of absolute tyranny and the human being will be just reduced to a kind of slave robot state. But after those 200 years, then things will get better. I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but he literally writes that. Uh, So there is there's quite a, a large spectrum there between the ground soldiers and the minions of these long term plans, and then, the, you know, the masterminds, however, deluded they may be, I would say let,
2: let's uh, yeah. let's recognize, let's recognize the, uh, uh, the grandiosity of that techno grandiosity of, of those people, those figures. Uh, you know, I which,
3: have, I have no, um, absolutely no diff, I am not giving offering a defense these attitudes or points of view and i i find a technocratic approach what i refer to as impositional approach of control to be in my opinion completely wrong and 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 naive completely naive i think it is a a baby's point of view that people think somehow is a sophisticated point of view I i think it is shockingly naive. Uh, So when I say these things, I do not say them in defense of uh, what I interpret as people's behavior. I, I only say them in my own struggle and my hand wringing as you say, Jim, which I do and I have been continuing to engage in, just my attempt to understand why. Why do people not see what I see, what people that I respect are also seeing?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think that a lot of this rage is uh, the result of some kind of uh, you know, an a, emotional inversion that comes from uh, the, 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 that existential threat of seeing your, your culture and your economy being uh you know going down the drain and uh you know uh emotions have these very weird inversions
3: well when you think about coercion and think about um how coercion might come out in terms of a um internally uh, I think about this with my family and my my children you know when i am um when hold on one moment sorry when i am um trying to get my children to do something i often resort resort to coercion you know if i and then i think this is just exactly what i cannot stand in terms of uh the the world around me when i am coerced to do something so i think to try and see the, the instinct in oneself and how it becomes an approach. So, you know, in that way.
2: I got to tell you a story.
3: Good, simply.
2: Some years ago, there was a friend of mine. Uh, he was my uh, cross country skiing buddy and fishing buddy. And uh, he had a couple of young kids and I, I noticed how he whoop, And I noticed how he uh, uh, acted with them. Uh, you know, whenever he needed to direct their behavior in some way, he would he would ask them a question. He'd say, "Wouldn't you like to put on your coat?" And of course, the two-year-old would say, "Now!" And he and and you know, all the time he asked he would ask the kid, you know, "Wouldn't you like to do this?" And wouldn't wouldn't you like to do that? With absolutely no. Uh, uh, understanding that, you know, he was talking to a two-year-old who was just going to say no. And that's, you know, sometimes you nearly, you merely need to be direct and just say, kid, put on your coat. Why? Because I'm telling you to put on your coat. And that's how parents uh, sometimes need to be with their children. I think that's universally understood uh, in human history, except maybe in America in the night from the 1970s on.
3: So I think it's interesting that at the same time that parenting styles have developed in favor of giving children free choice of everything, or at least engaging them in a rational dialogue when wanting them to put on their coat. At the same time that that style happens, an impositional style, of a uh, so, social and political style is growing up alongside that. So you become, the, t- the two-year-old becomes the, um, the individual with the capacity for rational thought and decision-making, and the adult becomes the equivalent, equivalent of the two-year-old that must be coerced.
2: No, it's, it's actually worse than that, Kate. What it ends up being is that, you know, children actually need boundaries. They need help. They need instruction. They need to be directed and advised and told what to do. And I think uh, uh, from very early on, they resent not having that. They resent the lack of structure and the lack of uh, uh, structure giving from the parent. And it enrages them. And so then they turn it on their parents. And what you're seeing now, you know, 25 years later on the campuses, are a lot of, you know, uh, kind of mal- maladapted uh, children and were still enraged at their parents for not giving them enough structure in their life. And these parents uh, or, or the, the parental figures on the campus anyway, the deans and the presidents, continue to not do that, to provide them with any kind of real intellectual structure. And um, instead they get, you know, the phony structures of, uh, of uh, wokeism
3: which is much which more
2: infantile
3: and is a much more tyrannical too. Yeah. So much, yeah. much firmer. So the, much,
2: the child really wants, the the child is, is acting out the need to be tyrannical back at the parent because the parent refuses to be, you know, to, to be the, the parent.
3: And And I'm not in favor of, <clears throat> I mean, I think that there are different forms that coercion, can take when it comes you to bet. raising a kid you know sure. and there are better and worse ways to do that of course you know so i'm not i'm not saying well we're talking about providing structure
2: highway. Well, you know, yeah, provide, structure. we're talking about providing structure you can do it by smacking a kid in the head or you can do it by showing them how something works yeah you know and, and uh you know more intelligent people tend to not smack their kids in the head for not you know uh for obvious reasons yeah but it, yeah, it's, you know, you're know you giving them direction. You're being a parent. I, you know, a lot of this uh, kind of makes me reflect on uh, the transactional analysis that I was involved in when I was uh, in my 20s, which was uh, at the time in the in 1970s, uh, a psychiatric approach, which uh, was uh, very useful and fairly simple. It tended to divide the human personality into three parts, the adult part, the child part, and the executive adult part, okay? And, and uh, two of those categories had two parts. The, uh, the parent part had a nurturing part and a punitive part. The child part had a playful part and a, uh, uh, a uh, rebellious part. The executive or adult was always the executive. You know, only had that one part. So the the whole point of transactional analysis was to help people act more out of either their executive function in their transactions with other people, or to do to act out of their n- nurturing parental functions, and to not be punitive with uh, their their family members and their friends. And it was a very useful way of understanding. And the the famous bestseller book by Dr. Eric Byrne called I'm Okay, You're Okay, if you remember that, it's now fading into history. But, uh, you know, I think we're seeing an, a very interesting illustration of how these parts of the human personality are transacting in our current culture. Whoop. Sorry about that. In our current culture. And uh, the inability to like sort out what what is the actual appropriate position to come from in transacting with your fellow human beings. Um, You know, the um, uh, the wokesters have chosen the punitive punishing parent role along with the rebellious child role. And they kind of they kind of code switch to use a popular term. They code switch in and out. Of those two psychological roles, and uh, the net effect is that they're angry and punitive and, uh, and punishing and coercive, and uh, uh, that's not a very good model for uh, for building uh, a common culture
3: and, and would you tie all of this the punishing and punitive you know what you could call a dysfunctional way of relating? would you tie this primarily to the, what you see as a breakdown of the, uh, the supportive structures of society?
2: You bet, of course, you know, starting with the role of men in the family.
3: No, but expand on that.
2: Well, you know, I mean, we're in a situation now where it's, it's actually become quite difficult for, for many men to even support a family. And to play a role of being a provider in a family. And, uh, and you know, the, these are traditional roles and people may object to the fact that they're traditional, but they nonetheless have meaning in human history and and uh, and in, in current culture. So, you know, we we've done everything we can to disable males. And uh, I think that that has fundamentally um injured and destroyed the family structure for starters it's also bled into a lot of other institutional workings and made it uh, impossible for them to uh function
3: jason did you want to comment
0: on that yeah i was just going to ask Jim about about the death of god if you're going to throw that in there too because i I may
2: not be the best person to talk about that because i was raised in a religion-free household
0: well, I know that, and, but that makes and, you
2: qualified uh, in a special way. I think <laughs> <laughs> I was um, too. Right? All I can tell you is this: you know, when I when I wrote my four novels, uh, depicting the uh, the novels were written under the rubric of uh, "world made by hand," and um, uh, I had a religious uh, group in the novel, a a set of characters who belong to a cult, uh, you know, a Christian cult, and um, the regular townspeople in my uh, fictional village. And um, as I wrote the book, you know, being a non-religious person, I I had to recognize how um, the role of the church or an institution a spiritual institution was so important in just keeping a society together especially one in which all the other institutions had failed in my novels you know the courts were no longer working the whole armature of corporate life was gone uh the school systems were not running anymore there was no there was no uh scaffold for everyday life left for people to hang their lives on the only thing that remained in the in the Uh, The world of the townspeople was the uh, congregational church, and it became their social center and, in a way, their emotional center uh, of the community. Uh, And then their community was invaded or, or, well, sort of invaded by uh, a group of Christian cultists who moved up from Virginia, um, which I depicted as being a very disorderly place. And, um, you know, they were kind of a clownish kind of cult. Um, the new faith brotherhood of uh, something. I forget exactly. The new Co- uh, the new faith brotherhood of the new covenant or something like that. And um, yet they, they, they ended up being the most competent uh, group of people in the whole town. You know, they were the people who could organize something to fix the water system. They were the, the people who could get something done. They were the people who ultimately were able to defend the town against, you know, interlopers. So, I developed quite a respect just through the the exercise of writing fiction about this for uh you know the virtue of having some kind of a religious scaffold in your life and uh, I personally don't uh belong to any group or any church um, but I could understand how it could be very valuable
3: so i've I've recently got gotten to know a lot of Christians because homeschooling community. And, um, the fact that a lot of people who are Christians are also the people who have stepped away from the, um, mainstream narrative about what's going on this past year and a half or so. And, um, and I've come to a point of having to confront my own, uh, came very quickly to a point of having to confront my own prejudices and assumptions about what Christians and Christians. I don't just mean Catholics, Methodists, whatever I'm talking about, people who are saved, you know, evangelical type, people yeah. who are very actively living out their Christianity. Um, and yeah, I've always, uh, kind of dismissed that, you know, Oh, those are people, those are deluded. Yeah. That my attitude would have been, those are deluded people. Those are people who aren't really thinking things through. And I just kind of took it for granted, you know, that I, uh, that was an othering that I did very automatically and very comfortably and knowing, knowing these people. Now I realized, first of all, they're very, very much a variety of, um, Attitudes that they have to their own faith, you know it's just not just one Jesusy thing that's going yeah. on, and um very uh capable of speaking rationally and intellectually about why they believe what they believe um, and also, as you point out uh very there is something that is gained by having that anchor. Of, of, you know, both an anchor of the community coming together, as well as, I don't necessarily think it has to be a shared belief system, but perhaps a shared priority system.
2: Well, there's something of, called a common culture. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things that we're really, that has been shattered in American life is a uh, any kind of an... A common culture when you embark on a program of multiculturalism you are in, in you know by necessity negating the idea of a common culture and a common uh, uh uh set of values that people can subscribe to so that in itself has been just a tremendously pernicious thing you know when when you're talking about a uh you know a, a christian group or a church or for that matter a synagogue you know, all of a sudden, not only do you have a belief system, but you've got a set of obligations to other people in the group. And uh, when you're living in a culture where anything goes and nothing matters, the word obligation, the phrase obligation to others is meaningless. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, the left has done so much to deconstruct the scaffold of, uh, of our emotional lives and our spiritual lives that, you know, we're now seeing the, 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 the wreckage of it all around us
3: well it's it also contradicts itself because at the same you know this the idea i mean i'm not even sure precisely there's the term the word multiculturalism kind of has this feeling of okay we accept different people in their cultures to do what they're doing and we're all going to get along in a general way because we respect what everybody does. Uh, 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 no, but no, that's I'm, a squishy saying,
2: way of putting it.
3: I'm saying that is kind of how the term is delivered. Yeah, and it's squishy. squishy. It's
2: squishy. Yeah. To, re- to send it that way is squishy and to receive it that way is squishy.
3: But do you think that that's- Because you're
2: leaving out, you're leaving out the whole question of what are, your, what are your actual values and how are these values going to compete in this multicultural society?
3: Well, do you think that I'm being- um, Squishy. Uh, yes, but do you think that the, do you deny that that 's how it 's generally delivered and taken in general uh,
2: no no i w- i wouldn't deny that uh, we see a tremendous amount of squishy thinking so, uh, having so we can't we can 't be precise or, or really accurate about what what we 're seeing so at the
3: same time that you have this kind of anything goes thing in terms of the squishy idea of multiculturalism, you also have these extreme rules and barriers and boundaries being put up in terms of what you can think about and talk about how you can express yourself, how, and if you can ever joke, how, and if you can ever um,
2: disagree. Yeah, and Those are the, those are the, um, those are the uh, uh, metaphorically, the, the, the baby minds in our culture, mind-fucking, the the parental uh uh part of the culture that refuses to to that refuses to act parentally
3: so i think you know when you talk about when you liken this all to religion and you say yeah so religion on the one hand has been dismantled but on the other hand all these belief systems are being acted out in the I very don't think
2: religion's in, been dismantled, it's still out there. It's not valued very much by, uh, by you know, I guess roughly half the population, but uh, it, it hasn't been dismantled. It's just been uh, kind of...
3: Uh, so I, get, I guess that's what I mean, marginalized in terms of what is, you know, what you'd read in the New Yorker or the New York but Times. But shared values or, and, have
2: been marginalized in the process. So uh, you know that's that's one of the reasons that we're, our culture is so dysfunctional, is because you know as I said when you when, when you outlaw when you outlaw common culture, uh, you, you're also outlawing uh, shared values and and uh, a consensual set of uh, uh, of, of uh, an idea of what's okay and what's not okay
1: so
3: when when you talk about the need for a common culture i think that the people who would delight in canceling you would say okay who gets to des- decide that common culture
2: it's a con- it's consensual it has to like anything in uh in l- like a lot of things in nature it tends to be uh, an organically self-organizing phenomenon it's emerging so it- You know, consensual, consensual uh, values emerge from uh, the many parts of the culture. And then people decide, yes, this is a valuable thing. For example, it's a valuable thing to not steal uh, from other people. Now that's been dismantled, for example, and right now in California, and if you go to San Francisco and it's no longer, you know, they've decriminalized crime. That's how insane it is, you know, and it's now okay to go into a store and, and steal less than $950 worth of merchandise and the security guards can't do a darn thing about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, there's a fundamental shared value about society that you shouldn't steal being dismantled by the wokesters. You know, when are the people in San Francisco going to get their act together and just, you know, force their their Civic leaders to say no, we 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 got a recriminalized crime.
3: Well, I I think that the difference is when you know, and this is it gets back to somebody like Christopher Alexander and his idea of design having to be something that is an emergent process and a process in the first place instead of an impositional thing. The woke mentality wants to impose wants to make a rule wants to make a boundary and you are saying common culture these rules how we live needs to emerge from everybody and it needs to be And by the way
2: the wokesters are not are, are not trying to impose a boundary and the proof of that is every time there is a boundary they change the goalposts They move the goalposts. So, you know, they're insincere. They don't mean it. It's bullshit. Well,
3: they're trying to,
2: they're trying to pull the, they're trying to coerce you. They're trying to coerce you. And if they can't coerce you with the rule they have established.
3: So you're just saying coercion is the end game. I
2: said it 20 minutes ago. Coercion is the end game. And sadism is the vehicle that delivers the pleasure to the people who are coercing him.
3: Mm. Jason? Anything here from you?
0: Well, I mean, that that end point, Jim, about the sadism, of course, as you know, I have a, a kind of a deep understanding of sadistic impulses and and I've done some deep diving into how they underlie our culture in many ways in terms of the uh, I mean, in, in my last book, Sixty Maps of Hell," I just did a quick history all the way back to ancient Sparta. You know, the, the way that they trained the warriors there isn't is, is a foreshadow of how they uh, what they do in the public school system in the UK and the hazing rituals in the US. So I think that there is um, there's 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 a kind of virus in our culture and society which could be identified as a sadistic impulse and Kate's referring to it as this imposition, this impositional drive within the culture and in society. And I would say, you know, the woke, my sense is the woke culture and, and these different players, not that we're naming any of them really, they're, they're more like symptoms than an actual disease. They're more like effects than causes. Is one thing I wanted to say. Um, and then and as a larger thing, about the, you, you mentioning about the religion you know, the religious zeal of of these kind of ideologies um i'm wondering because it's a nihilistic religion no there's a says nih- anything goes nothing matters well that's nihilism so so that's a contradiction in terms of nihilistic religion so then do you feel or have you thought about that it's not really a religion, it's a counterfeit religion and that there is a, uh, it's kind of like nature abhors a vacuum. If you can kill God and if you, if you can strip the culture of its roots in tradition and in a felt sense of the divine, then you've cleared the way for a technocratic science superstate. right? But it's essentially nihilistic. Its values are not rooted in anything real. As compared to a genuine religion, even if you're not a believer, I mean, paradoxically, yeah.
2: Yeah, And you know, you could you could also think of it in religious terms, and consider it satanic.
0: Well, yeah, I would probably well, Well, there you
2: you are. So you know, it's not simply you know. uh, a technocratic phenomenon it's something deeper than that it's satanic it's it's something that is deeply anti human spirit and anti human life at its best at least at at our best i should say <music>
1: Chicago, I didn't know where else to go, I was paid to shoot a man, I just shot him and then I ran, I didn't even get the money I owed, I turned around and took to the road, I've been wandering to where i fro from, and made my way to Chicago, I see the fire of the battle The drama in the poor man's eyes. I see a song take to the skies.
3: coming
2: from? Well, as I said, I think it's, uh, it's, a, I think it's a disorder of uh, the, the crashing of our economic relations and the fear that that provokes. And, um, you know, look, we've been living in a very comfortable uh, techno-industrial society, or one of increasing comfort for many people, not all people, obviously, in fact, you know, large numbers of people are not that comfortable. But in the West, life has become increasingly safe and comfortable for 200 years so that, you know, by the 1950s and 60s, you have these vast middle classes in Europe and America, Canada, Australia, et cetera. Uh, and uh, um, they begin to take the level of comfort and security for granted. And uh, when in fact, it's really quite an anomalous period in human history. And now we're entering an epic disorder that is much more, that bears much more uh, uh, relation to the kind of disorders that we saw in medieval society and uh, uh, classical antiquity, you know, these large forces of destruction and uh, imperial uh, destruction that are underway. And uh, I think we simply can't believe that our safe, comfortable, uh, convenient little capsule of civilization, of techno-industrial civilization is uh, under threat, is gonna be wiped away. And so it's disordered our collective mind if there is such a thing. And and there is, It, it relates to that, that emergent consensus that I, talked about before, you know, and a a consensus will emerge. And then uh, if the society becomes disordered, the consensus will, will disintegrate. And we're seeing the disintegration of it. Uh, You know, during the COVID, uh, during the first year of COVID, um, I found myself watching a lot of old 1930s movies on the Turner Classic Movies channel. And I just marveled at how different American manners and behavior were in the 1930s and 40s from the time we live in, you know? And how polite everybody was. I mean, even the hobos called, called uh, the, the other people in their world, Mr. and Mrs. Even the hobos wore neckties, you know? It was amazing what a powerful consensus of uh, proper behavior we had in America and how that is absolutely completely gone you know and um so you know I, you know we see an emergent consensus come out of the usa after the civil war and uh you know and and it congeals in the early to mid 20th century and then by the late 20th century it starts to break up and disintegrate and, that, and we're now in the real the real serious dangerous crack up stage of it so naturally the the collective spirit of, uh, of the country is disordered it's disordered, and uh, it's causing us to head into much more serious political and economic disorder on top of the cultural disorder so, uh, it's going to be a very sobering experience and when we go, as we go through this uh, economic and political uh, uh, convulsion you know, it's going to change a lot of people's attitudes and, you know, it'll be a kind of uh, Schopenhauer event where, you know, he described uh, cultural changes where people at first uh, ridicule cultural changes and then they oppose them violently and then they accept them as self-evident. So, you know, it'll be self-evident pretty soon that, uh, you know, we've come out of one particular experience and we've entered another. And and what we're entering is a period of relative, uh, relative hardship compared to the comfort and convenience that our parents, grandparents, and, and some of us, frankly, enjoyed in our lifetimes. And the kids who are, you know, under 30 are going to be living in a much more difficult world. And... um if I were them, I'd uh, I'd be pretty um, spooked by the whole thing.
3: Well, when you talk about living in a more difficult world, you, I am, oh, damn it, I'm guessing that you have, um, from what you've written about, you know where where things are going and what people should be doing to mitigate what you see as inevitable changes. I do have the sense. And also from your uh, horror at the post-World War II built environment and the systems and the structures that compose that, I do have the sense that you feel that some of the changes that we, you feel we'll have to make are positive changes. You bet. That's
2: why I wrote those World Made by Hand novels, was to to depict for people uh, a world which was really quite different than the one we're used to and in which a lot of the, the marvels and wonders of technology had been removed, but was nonetheless full of uh, human satisfactions that we had abandoned for for a long time. You know, whether it was working with people you knew at something purposeful or making music with your with your friends or, you know, many things like that. So, uh, you know, I think that there, that there's a lot of positive in that. For example, there's no question that the suburban living arrangement is is entering a state of failure. You know, without cheap cars that everybody can afford pretty much and without cheap and reliable sources of gasoline, we're not going to have suburbia. And it's just, you know, it's too goddamn bad. You know, uh, it's just the way things are working out, whether you liked it or not. A lot of people say, oh, we love suburbia. It's great out here. And I understand that. You know, there's a, there's a lot that they certainly like about it. Unquestionable. But, you know, uh, as I've said in my books, uh, reality has mandates of its own. And it's taking us out of that milieu. And it's going to require us to live in a different milieu. And what is that milieu going to be? Well, It's probably going to be traditional towns rather than suburban sprawl. Uh, I think, personally, uh, humans probably, all in all, do better in traditional living arrangements than in suburban sprawl. Now, uh, you know, the uh, the Europeans had very good uh, living uh, arrangements, you know, before World War II, and nonetheless, they still fell into a despotic disorder and a terrible war and terrible loss of life. So it doesn't, you know, good living arrangements don't guarantee that your society is gonna function. It can fail in other ways, but, uh, but it helps and it, it doesn't help us, you know, the, the, the living arrangement that atomizes uh, human relations, which is what suburbia is, has not helped us in the least. It's been one of the things that has destroyed the, our common culture. Um and so uh you know circumstances are going to require us to live differently, whether we like it or not um it just you know when you when you try to conceive uh the difficulty of that transition, you know uh everything that we've built in the last sixty years is really represents so much of our of our wealth and capital, and a lot of it's going to be uh useless. You know, uh, uh, it'll be useful only for salvage, you know, all those uh, big box stores and strip malls and stuff with, a, you know, we're going to have salvage is going to be one of the great operations of the 21st century as we go forward, you know, because it takes so much energy, for example, just to create a concrete block, you know, and we might not have that energy. We're going to need the concrete blocks that, that the muffler shops were built out of to build things other than muffler shops. Uh, You know, we're going to have to build things in a traditional manner, live closer together, probably not uh, be able to rely on motorized transportation, probably have to live in walkable communities. And uh, a lot of them exist, of course, in the in the small towns of America that have been the most disinvested places in America. You know, they're lying in ruins all around the upper Hudson Valley where I live. But uh, they're the places that are are probably going to be most easily reconstructed. And um, as I pointed out before, they all pretty much exist in their geographical locations because they occupy important sites. You know, they're either on rivers or water power sources or, you know, one thing or another that makes them logical choices, harbors, lakes, uh, some, you know, some geographical amenity that makes it makes it uh uh, possible for them to be there so uh you know uh you if you can imagine how much uh you know how much labor just labor it's going to take and without the kind of uh fossil fuel power that we've been enjoying and maybe you know maybe even without electricity you know because uh Uh, the electric grid is, as they like to say, the biggest machine in the world and extremely fragile as a system. You know, it's, it's liable to fail uh, uh, without a whole lot of uh, uh, provocation. So how are we going to rebuild these cities? I don't know. It's going to be, you know, these towns Our big cities, uh, you know, have, they've achieved, uh, a scale that's not compatible with the resource realities of the future or even the capital realities of the future. Um, And they're going to shrink. They're going to contract a lot and the process is going to be very ugly. Uh, There'll be fights about who gets to occupy the parts of the city that still have value. Uh, And, you know, there will be those places because big cities like New York, you know, as i said are there for a reason geographically and new york has the finest harbor in uh, the east coast and uh uh tremendous connection to the interior of north america because of the the erie canal and the champlain canal etc so you know the new york waterfront will have a lot of value but uh the outer boroughs of queens and the bronx you know uh I'm not so sure about that. Long Island, you know, probably the biggest fiasco, awaiting fiasco in America when that gets sorted out. So uh, the whole, you know, how we occupy the terrain of North America is going to be a major question going forward. And apart from the new urbanist movement, which I've been a part of for the last 25 years, not very many people are thinking seriously about, you know, how important that is. So... That's one of the things that will be sorted out emergently. You know, emergently, we'll recognize that, hey, we got to live a different way. You know, we're not going to all be able to have cars and we're not certainly not going to have electric cars or flying cars or any of that nonsense. You know, so what does it mean? Well, it means, you know, we're back to the traditional town, you know, a dense urban living arrangement. And then the question is, at what scale is that possible? Well, probably not at the scale of Los Angeles, New York, Atlanta, Houston, et cetera. And so those places are going to shrink. People are already leaving the cities. And, and the cities have, like New York, have, have entered an advanced uh, and accelerated uh, state of disintegration in, in all ways. You know, public transit, commerce, uh, uh, the social armature, all of it is falling apart in New York City right now. And public safety, and the same is true of Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago, and uh so that that's going to proceed. And then people will recognize, you know, the big cities are not going to be where it's at, especially as the energy uh, uh, quandary uh, uh, gets more traction in our lives. And that, so you know, you can see these problems, and and you can see what some of the remedies are there. They're not easy to solve, but you can see what uh, what we have to do. We can see what our task is, you know, and uh, and there are young people who probably see I I get letters from them. So they know it. You know, the people who read my blog and my books, they write me a lot of letters and they they realize what's going on. And a lot of them are moving to small towns. Um, Did you move to Maine from some other place?
3: We we started in Somerville, Massachusetts.
2: Well, that's a big city. Yeah, that's Boston, the Boston, Cambridge area. Sure. So, uh, you know, you left for a reason you were impelled to leave for a reason. A lot of people left the cities during COVID because, you know, they, they were enabled to work from home. So it seemed like a logical choice. Unfortunately, they, a lot of them landed in suburbia and what they're just going to discover is that that choice is going to bite them in the ass, you know, not too far down the road, but you know, people make mistakes and we made a lot of bad choices, uh, In America, in fact, you know, one of the characteristic things of um, of of the collapse of uh, our advanced technocratic society is how much it represents uh, an accumulation of bad choices. You know, deciding to do things that just, you know, seemed like a good idea at the time. And now the time has changed and they're not such a good idea anymore
3: so there's there there is the two two mindsets that i think of the one who would be the um what you would call the techno narcissists that yeah. believe that we we will come through this and increased um innovation ai uh electric cars this is going to this is going to get us past the emergency you're talking about and into a future where everything's fine.
2: Yeah, so that's, that's laughable, the, by the way.
3: That's all right. We'll get back to that. And then on the other side, the people who see that as a nightmare scenario is say that's going to be AI and nanobots and total tyrannical control. And who would say that tyrannical control is coming. It's not all going to fall apart, as you're saying. So there, the, on those two sides, the people who either embrace it or look at it in horror. What do you say to that? In terms of
2: what I say to that is that the you know the techno narcissists, what they're exhibiting is the grandiosity that has been part and parcel of the whole techno-industrial experience in human history. You know, it just it has given us an outsized uh, sense of what we can control. You know, there's an analog to that in academia that I, uh, I see it all over, actually. The, the, there's an idea that if you can measure enough things, you can control them. And that's a, grand, a form of grandiosity, too. And that's why people are constantly, you know, using the word study. There's a study. We've got to study. You know, we've measured this. You know, it's such horseshit. Because what it really does is it represents this this uh, uh, neurotic desire to suppose that you actually have that kind of godlike control, as opposed to, the, you know, understanding that life is emergent, and to some extent, you have to respond intelligently to the circumstances that reality presents to you. And uh, that, thats something that the techno narcissists don't like. They—they they want to defeat reality in the same way that they want to defeat nature.
3: You—you you have pretty um, strong feeling about different places to be in the United States. Uh, you know, as putting one in a better position to—to um, to meet what you see as coming, coming changes. And how do you, so like you and Jason to cut you, Jason is in Spain now and Jason and Michelle feel like for various reasons that that is the place to be, not necessarily the only place to be, but a very good place to be. They also, um, especially uh, Michelle concerned about the future of the United States so just wondering, and I'm wondering, too, whether your perspective on that has changed at all in the past year or so, it's what you've seen happening.
2: Well, I just see more evidence that, that there's a lot of potential for the United States to crack up uh, into, into different autonomous regions. I mean, you know, that, that happens in history all the time. In fact, it's, it's more the case than not. That you know large empires break up into different pieces where that, that have different re, uh, uh, different interests for different reasons um, that 's how I depicted it in those four novels I wrote and I think it 's a possibility it may not happen right away. One thing I did uh, say in the long emergency book, which I still think is true, is that uh, the central governments, like the federal u s government are going to actually become increasingly impotent and, and uh, incompetent and unable to discharge their duties or do the things that they say they're going to do. And I think we're seeing that illustrated right now in the Joe Biden administration, which is a uh, panorama of ineptitude and uh, uh, incompetence and impotence. And... Um, that in a way is an idea that is that this federal government is going to be able to impose all of these despotic measures on the on the people. You know, I see them trying to do that now, as you do, and, and feeling the pressure of it. But I can very easily imagine that imagine it backfiring and failing.
3: Does Australia concern you at all?
2: You bet it does. And I'm kind of surprised to see how pussified the men of Australia have become—that they're that they're willing to to be dictated to like this. Uh, You know, I I would be surprised if they they're able to keep it up uh, a whole lot longer. The uh, whether the Australian government's going to be able to persist doing this, you know, sooner or later they're really going to piss people off, if not already. Uh the United States is of course different, and you know, for the, the, the most commonly understood reason for that is that the population is armed. And um one thing that's true, you know, the, the the government has an awful lot of power that it can impose on on people, but we've also discovered from these foreign wars uh of the last few decades. That an angry population can create a lot of havoc <clears throat> with very few small arms, you know, with just, you know, rifles, pistols, uh, rocket propelled grenades, some, you know, explosives. Uh, you can create a lot of havoc with that, despite the fact that there's a huge army that's oppressing you. So so uh, that should be a concern for people. And I, I see a lot of potential for us falling into some kind of a civil war. Um, but, um, I tend to think that the Biden administration is so transparently inept and probably also illegitimate and that it's illegitimacy is being increasingly understood that it doesn't, it's not going to be in for a very long run.
3: Jason, do you want to, uh, say something about why you are where you are and your concern about the US.
0: Well, on that last point about Joe Biden, I mean I don't follow current affairs, but I pick them up, they filter down through my wife to me. So I can't avoid it to some extent. So I just make a counterpoint to that last point that however inept, inept the Biden administration is, it, it might not matter that much if if a president can just say, Hey, take your vaccines. And there isn't even a mandate, never mind a law, and everybody and their dog reacts as if as if it was a new law, that there's a kind of herd mentality now, which is sweeping through the populace that I think is changing the landscape.
2: Yeah, but not everybody's going along with it. No. <clears throat> that, that's the point. Not everybody is going along
0: with it. No, but there I also wonder, and I don't want to open up a new can of worms, you know, how much of the, the uh, balkanization of the U.S. might be, being prepared for, or planned, or even engineered, in which case an uprising can actually, if it's timed right, like a bomb or like you know detonations in the twin towers, then it can uh, then it can serve the long term interests of those pirates who who are just busy plundering the resources when and where they can get them. So, so I, I think a
2: lot of those pirates are going to be. I think a lot of those pirates are going to uh, take a loss. Um, I think a lot of them are going to lose their power their fortunes, and uh you know' uh, they 're not guaranteed to uh to prevail in this struggle you know whether it 's bill gates or or you know da- the davos people or or uh, Blackrock uh, finance or any of those people they don 't they 're not necessarily going to prevail you know some of them might end up in prison some of them might up, end up uh, you know uh, uh, hung from a lamp, a lamppost well, I definitely, uh, I, you know, I'm just not willing to surrender so easily to that, to that gang.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, and no, no, I definitely don't think that the that, 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 that evil will prevail because as you said, as reality eventually comes in to correct the situation where you and I differ. I think generally is, is that I, I see the organized malevolence and the, the, the insanity going a lot further back, uh, and, and therefore i tend to find it harder to be optimistic about the short-term future although i mean i hope you're right because to me a collapse that would lead to a world made by hand that that's the trajectory i'm on regardless of the way that the larger civilization goes so my my concern is is personal direct you know am i going to be ready and how hard it is going to be for me to let go of the the conveniences and the luxuries of the techno-narcissistic state that I've been complicit with, number one, and then number two, you know, what kind of ripples and repercussions will there be in either scenario? You know, As Spanish society collapses more, economy collapses more, or as it clamps down more and more and there's more and more you know, draconian techno control, either, either scenario is potentially a threat even to us out in rural Spain. But, and uh, what you were saying, Jim, about sure. the way it is in the US with small towns, that that's the whole of Galicia, pretty much. It's mostly just not even towns, not even villages, hamlets, and add, most of them abandoned, add to which, however, the, they're built stone buildings that are hundreds of years old. And again, geographically placed, so almost always near running water. It's not that cold here. It's a great harvesting climate almost all year round. So that's that's the the context that that we're thinking of. You know, that we're, as far as the long term planning goes, mm-hmm. is is just that for ourselves and for others. If other people can get here, and then there's more of us to. And if not, well. the the neighbors that we do have already they're growing their own food half of which they can't eat so we've already been receiving eggs and potatoes and lettuces we've only been here three or four months and we're getting loads of you know uh, locally grown food just
2: let me ask you a question um you say you know you you're going back in your view of the history of uh cultural and modern cultural insanity Uh, To the Fabians uh, of the turn of the century. And uh, let's say that, you know, the period between 1900 and 1925, I guess, you know, the George Bernard Shaw period, etc. What 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 I'm wondering is what exactly do you suppose was the allure of that for the aristocrats of Britain?
0: Well, I think it was mixed, but I think because if you look at something like the Rockefellers, you know, they could say that they're posing as philanthropists, but they're actually misanthropists who are, you know, plotting the kind of controlled die off that we're seeing now, say. And with the Fabian Society, likewise, they seem to be humanitarians, philanthropists, but they're into eugenics. So, which, but these two things are potentially congruent because if if just say to simplify if they think that in order to save humanity at all you have to kill off seven billion individuals and just oversimplify it, then you could see how a kind of malevolent plan would have a benevolent justification i mean is your mm-hmm. obvious go-to example so as far as the appeal to the aristocrats i mean it's it's pretty It's pretty easy to see that if you have that kind of grandiosity, as in you're born in a bloodline that's telling you that you're the elite, you're the creme de la creme, and it's your destiny to rule over the nations, then you're going to be quite ambitious in that regard, whether it's, do you think you're you're going to be part of a plan that will save humanity or part of a plan that's going to destroy humanity, or or both, right, to be consistent, you know. Mm. And I grew up in that environment, so I, I I can relate. You know, I have some of those pathologies running on, in my system as well. To
2: me, it's just so phenomenal. You know, I, I'm so uh, impressed by the differences in social arrangements over the the eras of time, and the fact that uh, you know what's what's completely normal for one set of people in one era becomes just unthinkable in another era. You know, so God knows what kind of, you know, situation we're going to be moving into up ahead, you know, how, what the social hierarchy is going to be. And by the way, that brings me, <clears throat> excuse me, to one other point about woke progressive Jacobin wokery. Sorry, I repeated that. Um, that I failed to make. Which is that a great deal of woke bullshit is being performed in the service of status mongering now not only is it a religious thing, but it's, uh, it's a way of getting brownie points uh, for high status because uh, you know having a, a father who's got a mercedes Benz is no longer enough. you know you ha- you, you, instead you know you have to show that you're uh, a person of uh, unassailable moral rectitude. And uh, so a lot of what you're seeing is really uh, collecting brownie points for status. It's a big status competition among the upper uh, elite classes, especially the Ivy league classes.
3: It's a new, it's just a new aristocracy. It's a new way to be aristocratic yeah. when blood uh, is fallen out of fashion.
2: What has, excuse me? Blood. 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 Oh Yeah 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 yeah
3: right and and blood has fallen out of fashion first, and then the accumulation of wealth has fallen out of fashion after that yeah now it has to be moral impeccability, but you know done in this very uh suspect kind of way
2: well, it's perverse, you know it's a perverse uh it's a perverse thing because it's also being done in coordination with these uh you know coer- coercive Sadistic practices that uh, are anything but really uh, moral.
0: Well, it's like a, uh, the ideology of state of masochism then, because really the highest status is the most victimized, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if you can't be a yeah. victim, you have to be the most benign kind of uh, uh privileged person. But really, you you want to be a victim deep down because that's even higher status.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and because it is basically a performative thing, you know, somebody has to play the role of the, you know, the Marquis de Sade with a whip.
3: Oh, it oh, comes back to the Marat Sade, huh?
2: It, a lot of it does. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what a, what a great intellectual work of the theater it was at the time. And, uh, uh, it, may, it got me very interested in the French Revolution early on, and uh, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons to be taken from that convulsion.
3: Hmm. Jason, is there anything that you would want to add to be maybe wind up our wind up our rodeo here?
2: <laughs> it's been quite a rodeo, two and a half hours.
0: Yeah, no, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to extend it into other further rabbit holes or tunnels of Cthulhu. I think we've covered <laughs> quite a few grounds. So no, yeah, just good to talk to you again, Jim. Good to catch. Well,
2: oh, it's great to meet up again, Kate. It's great to have a long conversation. Yes. Uh, I realize that it's been a little bit harsh from my end. I'm not going to apologize for it, but just uh, say that I, I recognize that I'm a bit harsh, and uh, there it is, you know, this That's dirty right. job, but somebody's got to do it.
0: Turn out the Turn out the there will be a podcast soon again. I don't know what it will be or who it will be with. There's only about four or five more to go. So, watch this space.